6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Philippians, chapter 3. He was spiritually bankrupt. Paul had to lose his religion in order to find salvation, and so do you and I. I think one of the interesting banners of the 70s that the young people discovered that led to the whole, what some people call the Jesus revolution among the young, was the realization that Jesus Christ was the most anti-religious person that ever walked the earth. And once they grasped that, they were uh, openly uh, eligible for the real truth going forward. Well, how can anyone go so wrong? By using the wrong measuring stick. Like the rich young ruler, which many people think was actually Mark, by the way, there in, in Mark 10 and so forth, and the Pharisee in Christ's parable in Luke 18. Saul had been looking at the outside rather than the inside. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount emphasized attitudes and appetites more so than just actions. You read the Ten Commandments, all but, all but one are basically uh, actions, but Jesus redefines that in terms of attitudes and uh, appetites and uh, that makes it so, so uh, uh, indicting, if you will. We're getting to verse 8. Paul continues, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. You know, it would be pretty hard to find a more forceful re refutation of human effort uh, to please God than what Paul has presented here. And... Uh, there's interesting that there's four Greek participles that actually introduce the strong statements of verse 8. But let's, we'll go on here. Paul's confrontation on the, board, on the road to Damascus caused him to see everything in his life quite differently. In Act, this all takes place in Acts chapter 9, the first 21 verses. This did not make him repudiate his heritage. He did not become less a Jew. It made him a completed Jew, one that has found his Messiah, and is his personal relationship that is paramount, and that is what Jesus prayed for with his Father. You recall in John 17, he, Jesus says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That Jesus, this intimate prayer of Jesus with the Father. Well, there's two kinds of righteousness. The works righteousness, and that's what the first six verses we're dealing with, and faith righteousness from verses 7 through 11 here. Paul continues, verse 9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You know, this summary right here is a summary of the whole book of Romans. The heart of salvation in one verse. Be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So all are classified within three spiritual types. The self-justified, that's Romans chapter 1, 18 to 22. 
uh, Paul indicts here in verses 23 to 21 through 28, the moral person, which is in Romans 2, verses 1 through 16, who still falls short of God's requirements, and the religious person in Romans 2, verse 17 to 29, and, but God looks at the heart, as we know, even as early as 1 Samuel uh, 16. But uh, the, the, the three spiritual types that Romans deal with are summarized right here in these verses. All are short of God's requirements, and that's God's amazing predicament. You know, I'm really uh, uh, enamored with uh, the acronym that Hal Lindsey has promoted, where he, he takes grace, G-R-A-C-E, as God's riches at Christ's expense. Most of us don't realize that God also benefited by the cross because it made it possible for him to extend his arms to us by having the price paid and uh, not compromising his righteousness. And uh, so it's, it's, it's God's amazing predicament is to love us and yet our conduct and our, our, our genetic defect of sin standing in the way. And he was able to, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish by at Christ's expense, by Christ's uh, uh, passion and his commitment and his offering of himself. How can a just God forgive sins? You know, that really fascinating insight of Socrates in 500 B.C. He's re recorded as saying, it may be that deity can forgive sins, but I don't see how. That's a very perceptive statement. Socrates realized that a righteous God has got a predicament. Because if he's going to preserve his righteousness, how can he forgive sins without them being paid? And that, of course, uh, he didn't have the visibility that, that uh, God would become man and be, enter the human predicament and fulfill our destiny on our behalf. Wow. The answer, of course, is an amazing gift, the gift of a son to pay the price and thus enable the redemption of those who would accept God's program. Gaining the righteousness of Christ, the technical term is imputation, to put to one's account. So if you want to put in your notes, read Romans 4, the first eight verses very carefully. It nails that right there. And our sins had, conversely, been put on his account. And uh, Romans 9 is a passage that deserves our careful study. So put that in your notes and follow through, and we'll move on here. The only indefeatable barrier to truth is the presumption you already have it. And that's one of the, you know, for many, many years, um, I used uh, Acts 17.11 as our trademark to be like the Brians who receive the word with all openness of mind but search the scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. And for uh, many, most of the last few decades, I, I always felt the real emphasis was to search the scriptures daily to prove things, what it really says. And in recent years, I began to realize it's the first part of that that's probably even the bigger challenge, to receive it with all openness of mind, all readiness of mind, to set aside our presumptions and, and, and to let the text talk. Because we all tend to approach the text with some presumptions of our own, and that's the only real barrier to truth is a presumption you already have it. Very fundamental insight there. So, it, so uh, Paul's going to continue focusing on the fellowship with Christ here. He's one of the most... Uh, 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 common misconceptions we see promoted today is that the celebration of the decision for Christ is, is some kind of climax or ending. You get that flavor in many, in many procedures here. It should be seen only as a beginning, a launching. It's not, a, it's not the uh, finish of the race, it's the beginning of the race. And uh, you say you're saved? Well, great. What have you done with it? 
They often like to do it with a large group. Ask how many you've saved and have people raise their hands and say, great, what have you done with it? What fruit have you borne? And uh, what fruit has, has your salvation yielded? And uh, see, faith is not an instantaneous event, by the way. It's a path of growth. And Abraham's probably the prime example. God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, uh, but he didn't fully respond until his father died, interestingly enough. He simply moved up river for a spell. That all comes out when Stephen summarized that for us in Acts 7. But his pilgrimage, nevertheless, was a journey of growth. And by the time you get to Genesis 22, his faith included the ostensible resurrection of Isaac. He was prepared to offer his son, knowing that he would be resurrected. And uh, the Akedah of Genesis 22. The ultimate goal, of course, is fellowship that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The fellowship. The word fellowship there is koinonia, uh, the, a word that means partnership, communication, and uh, participation. And uh, see, Paul exchanged a set of rules, the law, for a friend, a master, and a companion. Not the law, Christ. And often the ultimate intimacy is arrived at, ironically, through what some have called the dark night of the soul. Even when God seems to have isolated us from him, <clears throat> no matter how much we pray and so forth. One of, the, one of the steps you should be prepared for is that sometimes God will seem to be uh, uh, distant. And, uh, and, and that may be his way of drawing you into a deeper intimacy. And uh, that's the subject of our book, The Faith in the Night Seasons, which is a a really practical guide to the dark times, which God sometimes uses to draw us into deeper intimacy with him. And Paul speaks of the power of his resurrection. The sufferings here are not substitutionary sufferings on the cross, not at all. Only Christ could qualify for those. Paul did not aspire to participate with Christ in suffering for the sake of righteousness. God had used Ananias to tell Paul what he would do as a servant of Christ in Acts 9. The apostle did indeed suffer for Christ because he represented him so openly and truly. And, and that, uh, there's a distinction there. He continues, If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now this is a very strange passage here. Um, Ephesians 1 and 3 uh, deals with the forecast of what it can mean in your life. But the word translated here, resurrection, is a unique translation of exanastasis a word used nowhere else in the New Testament. It means a partial resurrection out from among other corpses, literally an out-resurrection. And um, a strange phrase. Why, did he doubt that he'd be raised from the dead? Hardly. Of course not. Some suspect that he was using this word to refer to the harpazo, or the rapture, thus expressing the hope that the Lord would return during his lifetime. And uh, that was apparently hope. So in Philippians 3, Paul is giving us his spiritual biography. His past, Paul the accountant, first 11 verses. His present, Paul the athlete, verses 12 through 16. And his future, Paul the alien, verses 17 to 21. And so in the previous section, we encountered Paul the accountant and, and, and revising his evaluations since discovering Christ. We're now going to encounter... Paul the athlete, 
pressing toward the finish line with renewed spiritual vigor. Different set of metaphors. And then we'll also see Paul, the alien, having expatriated his citizenship to heaven. It's interesting to see how Paul drew, drew uh, on illustrations. From the military, the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. He drew illustrations from architecture. You are the temple of God. That occurs seven times uh, through the, the New Testament. And from agriculture, what a man sows, that shall he reap. Uh, he, he had very, uh, a very rich uh, uh, reservoir of illustrations. And then, of course, from athletics in the verses that will follow here. And so uh, he, an ideal is something that everyone is expected to honor, but no one's expected to attain, some people say. Well, some view Christian discipleship this way, and that's tragic, but unfortunately very prevalent. So the, the, uh, Paul does not allow this kind of thinking to continue. In verse 10, Paul expresses his own lifelong goal. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. But Paul also recognized that many of his readers would dismiss this as an idealistic impracticality and unattainable. So he continues, verse 12, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. This is the declaration of a Christian who never permitted himself to be satisfied with his spiritual attainments. A sanctified dissatisfaction is the first essential to progress in any race or serious undertaking. The word perfect here, of course, really means completed or mature. And we're continually warned against false est a false estimate of our spiritual condition. That's a very key idea. I'm very impressed when you look at the seven letters Jesus wrote, the seven churches. Every one of them was surprised. The ones that thought they were doing well weren't. The ones that didn't think they were doing well were. But the point is we should never have a false estimate of our spiritual condition. Okay, so the church at Sardis, if you may recall, in, in uh, the third chapter of Revelation had a name that thou livest and art dead. Wow. They had a reputation without reality. What a terrifying indictment that would be. The church at Laodicea boasted that it was rich, but was actually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. These are the two that had nothing good said about them of the seven. There were two that had nothing bad said about them, and that was uh, uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And there's huge parallels between the epistle to the Philippians and the Jesus letter to the Smyrna. But let's, let's, we'll take that next time. So it's sobering to reach, realize that each one of the representative seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were surprised at their own report card. We need to really reflect on that regarding our own. That should give all of us pause for reflection. And it must have been a shock to Samson when he thought he still had his old power, but when he woke up in reality, it had departed from him. Can you imagine the shock of Samson, who began to take that for granted, that he had the special strength from God, that when he woke up and realized it had been withdrawn, that God had, uh, uh, in effect, abandoned him. What a shock. What a shock. 
So verse 12 is not only a statement of the demands of discipleship, it's also an announcement of the principles by which this calling should be realized. First, he acknowledges that he was called by Christ Jesus, okay? Secondly, God had a purpose in calling him. Do you realize that God had a specific purpose in calling you? You need to be called, indeed, okay? He had a purpose in calling you, and the great adventure in life is to discover what that purpose is. And thirdly, he acknowledged that he puts an obligation on himself, an obligation to follow after Jesus. Do you take Jesus seriously? Is it the primary priority in your life? That's what we're talking about here. We're called by the God of the universe. We didn't choose him. He chose us. John 6, Jesus reminded, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up the last, at the last day. He says that again in John 15. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. Did Abraham choose God? Hardly. He was perfectly satisfied where he was in the Mesopotamian River Valley in a pagan idol-worshiping culture. But God called him to be the vehicle for his plan of redemption of all mankind, not just the Jews. You and I are beneficiary of the Abrahamic covenant. Moses likewise. David, the youngest of seven sons, was chosen. John the Baptist was chosen before he was born. When did, his, when did John the Baptist's ministry start? When he's a few inches long and in, uh, you know, weighed a pound and a half and was in the womb. He jumped for joy. Jumped for joy. Interesting. Paul was in the process of persecuting Christians. In each case, it was God's initi initiative. God called him on the Damascus Road. He wasn't on, uh, on, he, wasn't, he wasn't on that path. And so it is with you and me. We're called. And we need to understand that God has called us. And the great discovery, the great quest is to understand, to discover what it is specifically he's called you to do. In each case, it's for a specific purpose. Every one that we can go through the scripture, always a specific purpose. And that's what he says in Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them, are, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That doesn't apply to everybody. No, it applies to those who are the called according to his purpose. For them, all things will work together for good. And yet it goes on, there's more. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he predestinated, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Wow. And then from then on, you go to that incredible tour de force that wraps up Romans 8. But let's get back to Philippians 3, verse 13. Paul says, Brethren, I can't count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Paul wasn't complacent. He was intensely committed to winning the race of life, of maximizing his opportunities. He wasn't complacent. He was driven uh, and uh, you know, it fascinates me uh, when I, uh, as a teenager, I went through Ben Franklin's autobiography and, and Poor Richard's Almanac and so forth. Ben Franklin was on this kick of trying to develop a virtuous life, and he had an interesting approach. He made a list of 12 virtues, 
And he knew he couldn't do them all at once, so each month he would pick one, and that would be his focus. And that one, that, that, that one uh, month, that one virtue, that month would be his focus every day. And it's kind of interesting. The one thing, that's an important flag uh, phrase for each of us. In Mark 10, one thing thou lackest, Jesus said to the self-righteous rich young ruler. Remember? That might have been Mark too, by the way. One thing needful, Jesus explained to busy Martha when she criticized her sister. One thing I know, exclaimed the man who had received his sight by the power of Christ in John 9. One thing have I desired of the Lord that, I, that will I seek after, testifies the psalmist in Psalm 27. One of the secrets of discipline is to concentrate on the one thing, the main thing. And uh, no athlete succeeds by doing everything. He succeeds by specializing. I'm fascinated. Ben Franklin also is always misquoted. His famous admonition is uh, always misquoted. He, 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 what he actually said was, be a jack of all trades and a master of one. Everybody misquotes him as jack of all trades, master of none. No, that's not what he said. His concept of an educated person was a person that knew something about everything and everything about something. In other words, to know enough to have a span of interest, and yet there is at least one thing that you know everything about. And for a Christian, that one thing has to be the Bible. You can know about a lot of other things, and that's very, very useful, but the one thing that you need to be a master of is the Word of God. And that's a lifetime challenge. And, uh, and anyway, uh, uh, let, uh, Paul says, let's not, let nothing detract him. A double mind, uh, James tells, uh, tells us, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Boy, if that isn't true, uh, more true in life, that people who are, are straddling. No, no. The people who are winning are, com are committed and, and, and perspicacious and, 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 and uh, persistent. Forgetting the past is part of all this. When the children of Israel were delivered from the bondage of the world, in that case it was Egypt, they repeatedly yearned for, for the earlier, more familiar life. And Numbers 11 makes references. We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away, and there's nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. You remember when they're murmuring there. Paul says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Forgetting those things which are behind. Paul simply means we need to break the power of the past by living for the future. Luke 9.62 is, is a, a key verse here. Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And uh, I'm reminded of the, uh, the uh, race driver that uh, I think that uh, first thing he did before the starting gun went off, he took the rear view mirror, ripped it out, and threw it. This, threw, threw it. There's a movie uh, we saw as a family where that was just an incidental thing, but he, he ripped out the rear view mirror and threw out the, uh, out the door, and he says, what's behind us doesn't matter. And that became a watchword among us in the family for a while. Uh, but Paul's saying, reaching forth unto those things which are before, st stretching as in a race. And uh, like, the, like, the, like the race driver, uh, what's behind us 
doesn't matter. We don't want to be a leeks and garlic Christian. And so Paul says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press. That's the same verb that was translated, I follow after, back in verse 12. It conveys the idea of intense endeavor. Nothing passive here, nothing casual, nothing convenient. No, a driving commitment is a flavor here. And it's important for us to realize that Paul is not telling us how to be saved. He's saying that's, that was something Jesus did already. See, that would be, if we did that, that would be by works and self-effort. That would contradict what he wrote in the first 11 verses, as well as most of the rest of his epistles. I press toward the mark. See, in order to participate in the Greek games, the athlete had to be a citizen, by the way. And he did not run the race to gain a citizenship. In verse 20, he will emphasize that our citizenship is in heaven. Already. That's not something coming. It is already. You're a stranger here. But since we are already the children of God through faith in Christ, we have the responsibility of running the race and achieving the goals that God has set for us. And if you want to talk about rewards, <clears throat> and, and, and I encourage you to take a look at our book, The Kingdom, Power, and the Glory, which deals with inheritance and rewards and their distinctives, and, and it may surprise you. But we're at verse 15, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God will reveal even this unto you. Here again, the word perfect, of course, means completed, mature. And uh, we're, continually, we're continually warned against a false estimate of our spiritual condition. But how can you know God's will? How is it possible for someone to know the mind of God? If God has a plan for your life, how does he reveal it to you? These are serious questions. And uh, Paul here focuses his readers on this very issue. In fact, he says, and, and, and uh, uh, the way it's in the, uh, in the inter International Standard Version, and if you think differently about anything, God will show you how to think. So God is committed to guiding us, not necessarily more than a step at a time, incidentally. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.